the passage for this morning is 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8 to 15. Um, on the Pew Bibles is uh, page 991. Okay. It says, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quickly with awesome missiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. We are continuing in our series on portrait of the missional family which is about what, how the church works, and particularly we've been talking about church leadership. And um, for weeks now, I've been so looking forward to this message. <laughs> um, I hope you, hope, for those of you who are new to our church, I hope you know I'm being sarcastic there. Um, uh, it's, if we, as we unpack issues about how church leadership works, one of the, uh, one of the issues that's going to arise is can women be elders, pastors? And, um, and I t- as I mentioned to you, the answer is no. And, but I thought that it's, this is such a difficult and, um, and really offensive uh, and troubling issue in our time that we need a whole message. And actually, I, I, I've decided to make two messages. Uh, there's, today, I'm going to talk about why um, only men should be elders and pastors in the church. Why do they have the headship? in the family of God, the church. And I'm going to talk next week about what makes the, what women's special contribution into the, into the church and into the world is. And so ladies, if that's a question that comes into your mind, but what about us, you know, today, just don't, don't uh, pull out your guns yet to come attack me. Um, just, just have some patience. And today, um, you know, I, I thought that as we we're gonna go into this passage, I, I was thinking there's some other passages I could have picked, but I decided, well, if we're going to talk about this issue of why men, only men can be um, uh, elders and pastors, I, I might as well just pick the, the, the biggest grenade there is in the whole Bible, <laughs> and that is this passage, uh, because this passage is really, it really does make it very clear. Um, and so uh, that's why I picked this passage Today, I know I'm going to talk about things that are very difficult and troubling, and, and maybe even for some of you, especially if you are here today and you're not sure about Jesus, or you're not sure if you believe in the Bible, you're, you're going to sit there and go, like, I can't believe this. This stuff is just ridiculous and, and sexist and all these traditional uh, type folks. Um, I, I, today, I want to just ask you to just, just step back. And before you get angry or before you dis, uh, d- dismiss or disagree, just listen and take in what is the Bible's perspective on leadership in the church and, and about and actually human life. Um, because that's what I, I want to get across here. What is the Bible's perspective? This isn't just merely my opinions. And so 
Yes, I, I, it was, I wasn't especially looking forward to giving this message, but at the same time, I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid to give this. And, and I do believe that it is good, it is good, and it is needed, and that it will bless many of you who, who, who uh, follow the Lord. And even if you don't follow the Lord, I hope that uh, you will receive this message and see, at least be open-minded to hear what our society needs. So, in three parts, a message I've entitled Sacrificial Male Headship. Part one, male leadership in the church from Scripture. I'm going to unpack the Scripture and what does the Bible have to say? Male leadership in the church from Scripture. Part two, reasons why male headship is needed and wise. I'm going to give you in part, I'm going to give you four reasons today. In part two, I'm going to give you three of those reasons. I can't give you everything, but I'll give you um, at least four big reasons. Um, part two, reasons why male headship is needed and wise. In part four, I'll give you the fourth reason in, 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 um, in part three, in, in, my, in the third uh, portion of my message, which I will call the sacrificing headship of God. The sacrificing headship of God. And then I'll give you a fourth reason um, why why we do it this way, why the Bible calls us to do it this way. Let's get into this passage. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Um, notice at the beginning of this, pa- of this passage, it was read, Paul says, I desire that men act this way. They pray, lifting up holy hands without anger. And then he talks about how women should adorn themselves not so much with apparel, or mo- um, but adorn themselves with modesty and self-control with good works and so forth, not with jewelry, and etc. And this portion, it, it segues right then, and then he says this thing going into verse 11 and 12, which is where that gets into our, which is relevant for our issue about um, elders and pastors and why only men can have that role. But I want to just say a little something. This portion is right before chapter 3. And, and in all the other passages in these previous few weeks, I've been talking about the qualifications of an elder and qualifications of a deacon. And um, that's in chapter 3. This, this is the discussion that goes right into this. This whole discussion about how men and women should be is in the context of church leadership. Um, when, you, when this was written by Paul, there isn't a little break when you have a big old three as it is in our Bibles. Uh, it was a letter. And the letter just flows from this discussion about um, how he wants men and women to be and then he starts talking about elders and deacons. So the whole discussion is talking about what's relevant to church leadership in the family of God. Now, let me get into this. Let me unpack this uh, verse by verse. It goes, verse 11, if you have your Bible with you, verse 11, here's what it says. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. And uh, even while I was reading this, I, I realized... We don't like any of the. We don't like anything that's said in that verse. A woman learn quietly with submission. We don't like any of those words. We don't like submission. We don't like a woman supposed to be quiet. We don't like any of that stuff. Um, but it, here's the verse, verse twelve. There are people in the church who believe that women should be able to be um, elders and de- um, elders and pastors, but I think that if they're going to make that case, they have to deal with verse 12. 1 Timothy um, chapter 2, verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach 
or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain, here she, he says it again, quiet. So if we didn't like it, if you didn't like it in verse 11, um, you, can, you can dislike it again, all right? Uh, verse 12, because he says it. Um, the question of whether women can be elders and pastors, uh, it's, I think it's pretty clear. Here it is right here. Um, there are many people, there are, well, I don't know, many is the right word. There's a minority viewpoint in churches that women can become elders and pastors. And I think all those who make that case have to deal with this verse. I don't think there's any way around this verse. I think this verse is really quite clear, that the answer is no. <laughs> because the, the context is church authority. And here he says, she shouldn't teach and have authority over a man, and instead she should be quiet. Now let me unpack this a bit. And some would say, I'm going to unpack this a bit in just a moment. But some would have argued, and by the way, it's, it's, it, on, on the surface, it's a very reasonable argument because there are places. Some have argued that when Paul says this, he's only talking about back then. Back then, they were very traditional, very hierarchical. That's the way women operated in the cultures back then because that's how all the cultures were back then. But now that our culture is not that way anymore, we don't have to actually follow verse 12, verse 11. And that seems on the surface a very reasonable point because there are other places in the Bible where Paul makes a very clear distinction. In this culture, it's this way, but not this way for us. This culture, I mean, um, he wrote a whole book, Galatians, where the Jews have a practice of circumcision. And if he says that you have to be this way in order to be saved, I mean, he says, no way. We don't have to follow this. Jews, you cannot impose this piece of culture upon the Gentiles and then say this is necessary for salvation. So here, a whole book on this issue, Paul knows what falls under culture versus what, does, what should be for all the churches. Here, the whole book of 1 Timothy is a book of an older pastor training and giving teaching to a younger pastor on how to lead churches and this book is in the Bible because it's given for all the churches for all time until Jesus returns how we should raise up leaders and what those men should be like. And here's what he says. So verse 12 is the teaching, which is very clear. But then he shifts to verse 13. Verse 13, it's not a cultural argument. It shifts to verse 13. For Adam was formed first than Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. What is he talking about there? He's making an appeal to Genesis. And anywhere, whenever you make an appeal to Genesis, we are talking about all men, all women. We are talking about, we're going beyond culture. We're talking about a universal issue that all human beings must face. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> and so, Paul here is making a case of biblical theology and how the Bible is teaching us something of all. He, he's not grounding his argument because, well, this is just the way cultures practice. He's clearly making a case from Genesis. Um, and then we have this very strange and weird verse, yet she'll be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Let me unpack these verses bit by bit. Um, so th that's what I promised you in this first portion. Yeah. 
I do not permit a woman, this is verse 12, to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Let me break this down. Um, some very ultra-conservative churches take this verse and they want to make sure that it is obeyed. And so when it says she can't teach or exercise authority over a man, she has to be quiet. So they think a woman should always be quiet in church. And she can't ever teach in any context where, there, where men are around or that men are, uh, women can impart any kind of teaching. And I think that that's silly. And most, the vast, vast majority of the churches are handling this verse in a very legalistic and foolish manner. Why? Because there are other verses in the Bible that talk about teaching. And, and what I mean by this is this. Um, sometimes, when, in the modern mind, when we hear the word teach, we think teach means impart knowledge or information, because that's what we mo- mo- mostly think. We see it in a functional manner. Um, and sometimes the Bible teaches it in that way, too, imparting knowledge. So give me give an example. And here, here's a place that is applied to the whole church, women and men inclusive, and, it, and we're commanded to teach. So um, Colossians 3.16. Here, that's the way teaching is understood, imparting knowledge. 3.16 says, let the word of Christ, that is the gospel, dwell in you richly, teaching, there's the word, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. And it goes on to say, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanks, thankfulness in your hearts to God. This is something all the church is commanded to do, including men and women. So men and women are supposed to teach each other and admonish each other with the gospel and, play, and puts that richly inside so they will dwell in our hearts. So there, that's a, an instance where teaching is about imparting knowledge. But that's not the only way teaching is understood in the Bible or even by human beings. Oftentimes when teach is, is said, it means to teach in such a way that the other person should receive and submit. In other words, teaching is a form of wielding authority. It's a form of leadership. And so here, some have argued, and I think this is the right reading, that when it says, um, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority, the, the context is authority. <laughs> we're not just talking about teaching and imparting knowledge. We're talking about teaching and having a sense of authority. And we don't even like these things in our culture. <laughs> that, and then, again, and what does it mean that she has to remain quiet? Does it mean that she can never talk in church? I think that's silly. <laughs> Um, I think most men like to hear the voice of women, <laughs> and certainly we would love to listen to the, hear the voice of women, and we certainly don't want to silence women to have their opinions or to say their things, because lots of times women have, have wisdom that men don't have, and certainly in peace and in unity, we should all humbly receive and have everybody talk. No problem there. But what is the, content, what is the quiet here? The quiet is it's a spirit of quiet a spirit of quiet to receive teaching that has authority. And I think that is the right reading of this verse. And in fact, it's the vast majority of all the churches, that's how they read this verse. It isn't just talking about teaching, imparting knowledge, but teaching with authority and quietness unto those people who should have a spirit of submission and quietness with authority. And by the way, I don't think that's only women. Men who aren't, Elders and um, pastors should also be willing to have a spirit of quietness and submissiveness to the rightful, authoritative 
leaders who should have authoritative teaching for the family of God. I think that's what this verse is about. And by the way, um, that is the, when I say that the vast majority of churches have read the, this verse and applied the verse into their church this way, I'm not kidding. <laughs> um, churches disagree on lots of different things, lots of different denominations, but all the churches that are serious about obeying the Bible, all the churches that have been serious about handling the Bible, the vast, vast majority of the churches, and not just now, but in history, that is how they have handled this verse. And that's how, why they, for the vast majority of them, have only men as elders and pastors in the church. And, I'm, and when I say this, I'm not kidding, um, all the different the Protestant denominations that are serious, for the vast majority of them, I'm talking 98% of them, that's the way they handle this text. And Protestants and Catholics disagree on lots of different things, but they don't disagree about this. The Catholics are absolutely on board, and that's how they read this verse. And there's a whole other branch of Christianity called the Orthodox. The Orthodox don't agree with Catholics or Protestants on, on numerous different issues, but they don't disagree on this. The Orthodox Church only has men as their pastors and priests. The Catholic Church only has men as their um, uh, priests and bishops. And, um, and all the, the evangelical Protestant churches that take biblical authority very seriously, the, the majority of them have handled this way. Who are the churches that really don't like this verse and are trying to get around this verse? They tend to be the churches that we have called the liberal churches. And by liberal, we're not talking about politics. We're talking about theologically liberal. They have done all kinds of strange gymnastics to try to whittle themselves out of this verse. But honestly, the verse is not hard to understand, is it? When you actually take it for and understand it in context, it's actually pretty clear. And it's not some kind of oppressive thing to women at all. And so it isn't that... The, the verse is hard to understand. It's that in our time, in our culture, we don't like it. We don't like it, and we have difficulty with it. That's why we're trying to find ways to get out of it. But actually, I think what it teaches is fairly clear. Now, let me get at the verse 13 and 14. Why does he make this appeal about, and this issue about Adam and Eve? For Adam was formed first, then Eve. What does he mean there? Well, what he means there is Adam was the head, and Eve, Adam was formed first, and then Eve out of her, because God didn't just make Eve from the dust as he did Adam. He made Eve from him. And then why? Because symbolically, symbolically, she is, the oneness under them was that he was to be her head and she was to be the body. That's how the Bible describes marriage. In Ephesians chapter 5, the husband is the head and the wife is the body. And that is how they are one flesh. That's, that's the picture. There's a headship going on. But then it says, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. What is he saying there? I know it sounds very strange. It's as if he's like blaming Eve. That's not what he's doing. <laughs> What he's doing there is when the first sin was committed, which made all human beings in all places and all times fall, what he's saying there was in the sin was not just a, dis, a, a, a disobedience of a particular command. Really what there was, was in that disobedience was a whole, was a whole uh, distortion. And it was an upending of headship and rightful authority. That's what he's talking about. 
Why? It's say, in saying that Eve was deceived, it's saying that she believed, she believed the serpent and she didn't believe her husband. She didn't believe her husband or God. So she listened to somebody else, let that person, that not even a person, the devil influence her, received a lie from the devil, and then instead of following her husband. And then her husband, the head, he then believed his wife, not God. So what was going on? His head is God, and yet he believed his wife, who believed the devil, and then he failed headship too. That's what's going on. And so when he is saying, and he's citing this, why the church needs a rightful form of male headship, because the church is as a family, and in so there is, we must model the way um, this works in the marriage. And he's saying deeply, what one of the things that makes the world, has flipped the whole world, is upside down, is because we don't even know who to listen to, who to follow. In our time and age, in our culture days, we don't like words like submission. Having to become quiet before who are those who have authority. We don't even like authority. We don't like obedience. These are all words we hate because we believe that everybody should be their own boss, their own savior, and their own Lord. And I have a word for this. We call this radical autonomous individualism. And we believe in that. We really believe that that's the way things should be. And everybody, we have this feeling inside of us. I don't have to follow anybody, but actually we all do. We all need to know we all have to follow somebody. Me too. Just because I'm the pastor doesn't mean I'm the total boss. There are other pastors, and I have to submit to the other elders. And of course, I have to submit to God. And we all must submit to God. And we need, we need truth. We don't, there is a reason why in our day and age, why marriages are falling apart. There is why people don't even know how to run their lives because we don't even know where to get truth from. Because we don't even know who to listen to. We don't even know who's, who should have authority. So we put foolish people in authority. <laughs> we put foolish people into authority. And then people who shouldn't even have authority because we don't even know who should be qualified and don't qualify. And then we listen to people who have lies all the time and we can't even tell what, are, what is truth and what is lies. So why we don't even know who has truth and lie? Truth, because we don't even know who has authority to tell us truth. Two, we don't even know who we should submit to, and we don't even know how, how authority is, and so we have this very chaotic, angry society filled with division and hatred, filled with people constantly suing each other, literally shooting police officers. Um, this is what's going on in our society, and incredible cynicism hatred and anger and even process that's supposed to bring about peace. We're trying to pick our leaders in terms of our political process, and it's filled with strife. And there's incredible cynicism because we don't have leadership and authority. And right, of course, that goes right into our marriages. And so headship is very serious business. And it blesses the world if we do it according to wisdom in the way we were made and the way we were intended to be by God, and it's all thrown off. And so um, that is the, that's, that's what the Bible says. Let me just say one last thing. Um, I kind of neglected to do this in first service. Verse 15, um, <laughs> I, I, I kind of wanted to even not mention this because it just kind of opens up a big can of words, and I'm going to touch a little bit more on this next week. It says this very strange thing, that she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. 
And I think what this is trying to get, what does that mean? It's so weird. Um, um, it doesn't mean that she's supposed to get saved salvifically because that's absurd. That would just make the whole rest of the Bible completely, you know, um, the, the whole gospel would make no sense. I think what it's saying is she'll be made, she will find our whole society will be made whole. Why does it say that she'll be saved through childbearing? Does this mean every single woman has to have babies? <laughs> no. And some women, obviously, you know, for various different reasons, some women because they don't want to have babies, some women because they can't have babies, and I know that's a very painful thing. Okay? And some women actually called by God not to have children. So it can't be that, that that's, that's the point. But I think what this, this verse is trying to say is um, women were made to offer a blessing into the world that's special to them. What's the one obvious thing that women can do that no man can ever do, no man can ever hope to do? Although there's some people I think they probably want to try to make it happen in our crazy age, right? But which is that they would give life. And this isn't a, a point about just every single woman, but women in general. That if women would go to what is special to them, this is what will save her and it will make her more whole. And again, I'm saying, not women don't all have to have babies, but women should seek what is their special contribution and not grasp after power. That's what it means, that they should continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control, not grasp after power. The whole context is about authority, and I think that's what he's saying. Right? And so um, let me wrap up that portion. Um, oh, actually, one more point that I want to, before I, I leave this portion about ma- um, male headship, in the church from scripture. It isn't just 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. That's, I think, about as clear as anywhere in the Bible. But women submitting to men, such as like wives submitting to um, husbands, that's very clearly taught, and not just in one place. It's taught, um, it's taught in, uh, it's taught that, uh, well, here, let me just give you a few, quickly. 1 Corinthians 11.3, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. We're talking about heads. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. I'm going to go a little bit more into that verse next week. Um, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. That's Ephesians 5. Uh, Titus chapter 2.5, women are to be self-controlled pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. And I know that these are unpopular things to say, but it's said in many different ways in in the scripture, so it's not just one place. But I want to make a comment about this. When we're talking about only men can become elders and pastors, it doesn't mean that all women are supposed to submit to all men. That's absurd, right? I mean, there are foolish men, (laughs) All women aren't supposed to submit to all men. That's completely absurd. It doesn't say that anywhere in the Bible. What it says is wives submit to husbands. Children submit to fathers. Fathers are supposed to be ahead of their families. And we're supposed to submit to our elders, elders and pastors, those who are rightful heads in the church. That's what we're talking about. And, um, and it says in the sense that fatherhood and male headship is, in, is, is, uh, is the way God intended. It's also said in other ways in the scriptures 
Some of you are familiar with passages, especially in the Old Testament. It's also in the New Testament, by the way. You have whole chapters about how history, you have genealogies, and this person was related to this person. How is it said? It's said this way. This guy was the father of this guy, was the father of this guy, was the father of this guy. And that is another way of saying that when God looks at human community, he looks at it through the headship of fathers. And so this is a repeated theme. Um, it's a bit of a dirty word these days. The Bible is patriarchal and sees the human community, if it's supposed to flourish, is intended for the headship of fathers. And if that is the way it's going to be in families, it's certainly, that is also the way it should be in the family, the most important, the eternal spiritual family, which is going to be led by God, who is called Father, <laughs> that he would appoint men who would want to lead like God, sacrificially, humbly, holy, and they would be as fathers to the church. And so that's my biblical case um, for why male headship from the Bible. Right? Let's go to um, part two of my message. Reasons why male headship is needed and wise. Reasons why, I can't say all the reasons. I, I, I don't even know if I know all the reasons. I probably don't. There are many reasons. But um, in this portion, I'm going to give you three three big ones that are highly relevant, um, well, to all times and all places, but especially in our time. And I think they're kind of, uh, and I want to give you, um, bring attention because they're especially relevant to our time and in our culture. Um, The first reason, our culture is deeply confused. And quite frankly, we are in chaos when it comes to gender and sex. Our society doesn't know how to be men and women. We don't know how to be men and women in such a way that brings peace, blessing, joy, unity, gladness in our society. Our society is utterly filled with strife and anger about these things. I I said that I mentioned um, (laughs) uh, uh, the the, the, the political. We even have somebody running for our country uh, to be our leader of our country, the president, who I think is utterly not qualified. (laughs) Why? Because he, has, he flips wives and treats his women like trophy wives. That's what he does. And he thinks because he's rich and because he has been successful in business, therefore, he should lead a whole nation. I don't think so. He certainly couldn't be a leader in a church because of the way he has flipped his wife, has chose trophy wives. Um, and so right now, just even in our own society, we don't even have good men. <laughs> that we have a problem with having good men. And so I'm going to return to that point. Um, but let's just, just the chaos. Let me just point out some of this. Um, marriages. So many marriages stumble here. Um, I talk to many different pastors, and they sometimes talk about um, their marriage cases, their marriage care issues. And this comes up again and again and again. Husbands and wives fighting, and because they don't have peace and wisdom about leadership and headship. And um, husbands not knowing how to leave their wives in peace and humility and with righteousness. And wives not knowing how to submit to the wisdom of the scripture and submitting to God. And even so though that at times they disagree with their husbands, will say, well, because God said it's this way, I'm going to trust God, even though I think you're wrong in this case. All right? Um, and this, this is deeply lacking, and many marriages shipwreck right here. Um, 
other, other things that are happening in our culture. How about the hookup culture? We don't even know how to date. A lot of the, uh, you, uh, you, you younger brothers and sisters in the church or um, people here in the church, dating is deeply broken. We have, these, we have apps now, Tinder, where it's not, the point isn't even to have a date where the man will know I'm going to be, be the man and you'll be the woman. There's a certain way I'm supposed to treat you and there's a certain way that you're going to respond. That, that, that's, that's, even, that's just eroded in our culture because what we're just going to do is get together and have sex. And by the way, it doesn't, you don't even have to have men and women. We can just have, um, now there can be, there, there, there are the relevant apps for, uh, for guys want to have sex with guys and women have sex with women or bisexuals want to have sex with bisexuals or even groups. And so this, how do we even treat each other across the sexes? That is so, it's just so disintegrating in our culture. Um, we have this thing, it's been legalized, it's good. right up to our highest court, this thing called gay marriage. Um, I don't, let me tell you something, as a biblical pastor, there is no such thing as gay marriage. <laughs> there really is no such thing. It's something that we're trying to invent. Marriage is between a man and a woman, that's the way God created it. <laughs> he did, we didn't, we, human beings didn't invent an institution called marriage and thought, well, it'd be nice if a man does, it meets with a woman. God created it. And so we can't invent something called gay marriage. But I, I, as I was preparing this message this week, I was thinking, you know, even 20 years ago, this would have been unthinkable. 20 years ago, it was 1995. I was still in graduate school at the time. If I mentioned to my liberal friends that America is going to accept something in gay marriage in 1995, they would have thought, no way. And in 1985, it was utterly unthinkable. And let me tell you, 1985 was not a liberal, it was not some kind of like conservative traditional, it was a very liberal time. 1995 was a very liberal, it was an even more liberal time than 1985, and that's how much wisdom is utterly being lost out of our culture today. You could see it more and more in just the strife and the anger. Um, and there's this other thing that's going on in our culture. Truly, we don't even know how to be men and women because some people feel like they can choose. I don't want to be a man anymore. I can be a woman. And there's a very famous athlete. He's literally a world-famous athlete. He's not just famous in America. He's famous around the world because this athlete was a gold medal winner. And I'm not going to say his name because it is his name because he changed his name. But he can have a woman's name, but I think he's still a guy. <laughs> because we think you can change, if you can change your physical features, now you can be a woman. But just because you change your physical features doesn't make you a woman, nor does it make you a man. You can change, you're going to put on certain physical features, and now it can be a woman? No. And so we're deeply confused about this, and now people feel that there is a right to do this, and I told you there's strife in our society. Unbelievable strife is happening in our society. I don't know if, you, if any of you are listening to this in the news. There are cases going on. There are lawsuits. And this is going up. Uh, this, I don't know if this is going to hit the Supreme Court. It probably will. Certainly will go up the higher courts. Because there's going to be lawsuits that's going around in our country now where women go into a woman's bathroom or a women's locker room at a gym. And they bump into a man who is either made himself a woman, is on his way himself to make himself a woman, and now he, because he is a transsexual, has a right to be in there, but women feel violated 
that there's a man in there now peeping at them while they take off their clothes in places where they feel like they should, it should be a sanctuary for women. And you know what? They're right. <laughs> of course they're being violated. Because this most basic, seemingly obvious piece of wisdom is now being lost in our culture. So this is, this is what's happening in our culture. Um, I don't mean to scare you ladies, but um, you may need to look carefully next time you went to a women's bathroom. I'm, 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 I'm serious. I'm quite serious. Um, the point that I started with, now the, nowadays we just don't even have, the, just good men are lacking. Um, when I meet young single women, especially those who are Christian, I, I like to ask them, I mean, this is, I know it sounds a little nosy, but this is me trying to be a caring pastor, <laughs> fatherly elder in the church. I asked them about their dating lives. And time and time again, you know what I hear from um, young ladies? Where are the good men, pastor? <laughs> I said, I, I want to marry a godly man, and I, I want to find that person, and I, want, I actually want to submit to my husband. I want to respect him. I want him to be the head but where, is, where are these guys? And there's so many women today that are frustrated by this. Why? Because we don't have wisdom in our culture. We have so many terrible, inadequate men. Some of them aren't even men. Honestly, they're just boys. They may have a man's body, but they're acting like boys. And so one of the, one of the pastors I respect, um, a, a pastor named Mike Birchfield, he put it very simply. He, said, he says, he, goes, he was saying, oh, I talked to them. This is what they said. He goes, I see a time and time again, you know what, we don't, we don't have real men. Like men who are worthy to, to respect and submit to and who have humility and gentleness and patience and kindness and holiness and righteousness. All those qualities that we've talked about are the qualifications of both the elder and the deacon. Instead, he says, what we have are either barbarians <laughs> or wimps. That's what he calls them. The two, the two pathways of failing real manhood is violent, abusive, power-hungry. I got the money, so now I can just get rid of you, like the guy running for president. <laughs> Although he's probably at least a nice guy. At least he's not violent and abusive. But there are others who are, who, who are, who are stubborn, who never listen, who never really um, pay attention to the needs of their wife or girlfriend or daughters or even women. And you have those, those, those are my pastor friend calls barbarians. And then, but then you have the other ones, the guys who are, yes, dear, yes, dear, yes, dear. That's all they ever say. They can never disagree with their, their girlfriend and their wife or women in general because basically they're afraid. <laughs> because they're passive wimps. And they're always just hoping that, oh, we'll just kind of converge but there's lot, there are, well, hopefully not lots of times, but there are going to be times when you won't agree. <laughs> when you won't agree. And a man has to have enough manhood to say, honey, hi, look, I know that you disagree over this, but I've prayerfully considered this. I've gone to the Lord about this. This is an issue we can't just disagree on. Like, okay, this time, you know, you, we'll, go, we'll go to McDonald's this time, but we'll go stay at steak next time. Fine, you can disagree on those things, okay? But how about which school we send our kids to? If dad wants to go to a private school, but mom wants public school, you can't just agree to disagree on that issue. It has to go one way or the other. And there must be a time of unity and of peace and 
Here, we must know where leadership happens. And sometimes the husband will have to say it. It's like, honey, I've prayerfully considered this. And for these reasons, and I know you're not, you don't agree, but I need to ask you, under God, will you submit to Jesus? And here, be willing to submit to me. Not because I'm the best, but because God has called me to this role. And let's pray that the Lord would do this. And if I'm wrong, I will... A man should be man enough to say he's wrong. <laughs> this, is, this is the right kind of leadership, and we don't have enough of it. We either have barbarians or wimps, <laughs> passive cowards, quite frankly, and that's just as bad, honestly. And there's lots of women who are frustrated for, with both. And so all the men here in this room, especially if you believe in Jesus, let me call you to be neither barbarian nor wimp, but be to a more... Elder quality type man, a man more like Jesus as you lead um, your wife and your children, all right? Let me give you, that's first reason, deep confusion and chaos about gender and sex. Let me give you a second reason. Um, honestly, some of you may not like to hear this, but fathers as heads is really simply the norm of humanity. It really is. You can go to, you can talk to anthropologists, and uh, sociologists who have studied this, not just in the world now, but throughout history, the vast majority of cultures, and of course you can always find exceptions. There's that one odd culture in South America, they're, they're a matriarchal culture. <laughs> but the fact is, they, to me, they're just the exception that proves the rule. If you can only find one odd exception, you can't overturn the whole principle of wisdom with one odd exception. To me, that's just only, it actually helps undergird the wisdom, the wisdom of the norm. Um, fathers as heads is the norm of humanity, and it comes out in all kinds of different ways. Um, one of the things I've noticed is we have a society that we absolutely believe that women are equal to men. And by the way, Christians believe that too. But here's where we disagree. In our society, there's a kind of liberal feminist view that if they're going to be equal, we must be equal in power and interchangeable in role. But that's not the way the Bible puts it. The Bible says there can be different roles, and there doesn't have to be an equality of power, but there is always an equality of worth. Always. Men and women can have different roles and different places, and even a an in inequality of power and authority, but absolutely an equality of worth. And even in this sense, I've noticed, even in this post-feminist society that we live in, just look around, and let me ask you to be honest. Even, I'm talking about even the liberal women. Even the liberal women, in fact, pretty much most women, they want men to lead. They want men to be, to be worthy of their respect. They want the majority of churches are led by, by uh, men. And that's not because men are oppressive, because even the women want it that way. And let me, the women, when they're looking for a man, they want a man that they can say, I can respect you. I think even most women are looking this way. And it even comes out oddly. Um, let, me give you, uh, let me give you something that I very much noticed. They literally, they all, women want to look up to the, the man that they marry. They want to look up to them figuratively. And others look up to them, I respect you. But quite literally, this is really strange to me. I thought this is so amazing. Quite literally, women want to literally look up to their man 
which is why the majority of women are even uncomfortable <laughs> if the man they date isn't taller than them. <laughs> and it takes quite a bit. It takes actually an extraordinary and strange situation for women. So even women, I notice that women, when they're tall, they even get uncomfortable with their height because they realize, wow, this actually kind of shrinks my pool. I don't just think about that. That's a strange piece of social fact, but it's really consistent. Um, one more point about this, uh, um, fathers as norms. If this is the norm throughout um, families and marriages and throughout cultures, certainly it's supposed to be in the church. This is why I've talked about elders and pastors being like fathers in the church, because that is what we're like. And pastors and elders, this isn't a job. It, you go to school, I went to seminary, now I'm qualified. No, that's not what the Bible says. He went to seminary, has a master's de degree in divinity, now he's qualified to be a pastor. That's not what the Bible said. <laughs> in 1 Timothy 3, there's a whole set of qualifications, and really it was about being a certain kind of man, a certain kind of character, a certain kind of fatherly character. And so that's what we're looking for here in the church and in the families and in marriage, and this will deeply bless our society. You know, um, men, one of the most fundamental ways that we learn is simply by seeing it. We see it. There could be somebody who grew up in the church, and I've met people like this time and time again, and I've met them, they've told me stories like this. I've heard pastors tell stories like this. People who grew up in very, call them non-traditional household families, and they usually have misery. <laughs> And then somewhere along the line, they, they meet a Christian and they come into the church and then they get saved and then they get invited to people's houses and they go, hey, that guy, that guy, my pastor, that guy, my elder, that person I respect. And then they start seeing them interact with their wives and their children. They start seeing the way they do leadership with humility and gentleness toward everybody else, men, women, and children. And they go, wow, this is the way it should have been. And they realize there was something broken in the way they're raised. And this is a blessing we need to offer into our society, into our culture, a deep form of healing that needs to happen. One more reason before I move to the last portion of my message that I want to get to you, and this reason is this. Fathers are crucial for children and their faith. It's fathers who are really very significantly determinative of whether children will follow the Lord. Let me ask you to turn this on. Uh, and um, I actually presented this. So I presented this uh, three years ago, actually, in a different sermon. But I thought I would bring this back because it's so relevant to, to this topic. And, um, and some of you weren't here three years ago, so this will be nice for you to hear this. Um, this is from an article which I will share with you in, in a Christian magazine called Touchstone. It was written by an Anglican priest and um, the name of the article is uh, The Truth About Men and Church. The Truth About Men and Church. And um, he cites data it's from this, really, uh, from this a scientific journal called Population Studies. It was issue number 31. And it was talk, and it, and it cites a book called The Demographic Characteristics of National Minorities in Certain... European straight states edited by Werner Haug, okay? So anyway, um, that's, that's the book where this, all this stuff comes from. And really what it is, it's, it's a, there's a rich sense of data from Switzerland, 
And they have a decennial census. Does anybody know what decennial means? Huh? Is it every 10 years or every 5 or every 20? I don't know what decennial means. But anyway, they take a very important um, census and they ask a lot of important questions. Apparently, one of the things that they ask is the church-going habits of mom and dad and then children, especially after the children grow up. So let me share some of this with you because I think it's very, very eye-opening um, to share with you how the Bible is indeed truly wise. All right? This is from Switzerland. All right? Fathers and their children in the church. If the father and the mother, they both attend church regularly, here's what happens at least in Switzerland. And by the way, I don't think this is just Switzerland. I want you to understand, this is not a small sample size. If someone, you, you hear things about polls, they call people up, do you like this presidential candidate? We're talking 1,000 people there. That's not a small sample size, 1,000 people. But that's small compared to this. We're talking millions of people here. We're talking a whole nation over a long period of time. This is very, very deep and serious evidence. Right? So... What happens? If the father and the mother both attend church, 33% of the children, roughly one-third, will attend church regularly. 41% of their children will attend irregularly. In other words, almost three-quarters of their children will go to church, even if irregularly, but a third will go regularly. And then about a quarter, 26%, will fall away from church and the Lord. That's if both parents go to church. So, you know, as I said to you last week, there's always got to be that idiot kid. <laughs> According to this, one out of four kids is the idiot kid. <laughs> okay? <laughs> and so, moms and dads, if you have one of those, don't feel guilty. That, that's just kind of the way it works out sometimes, apparently. Okay? All right? Um, if the father is irregular to church, but mom goes regularly. Father goes sometimes, but mom goes irregularly. And I know some of this is very relevant to some of you we're, we're describing your family here. What happens? 3% of the children will attend regularly. Isn't that incredible? We went from 33% to 3. 59% will attend irregularly. So we still get almost three-fifths. 60% will still go to church, although not as faithfully or as regularly. And then about almost 40%, 38% will be lost from the gospel from the church, okay? If the father is not a practicing, doesn't practice at all, but the mother goes regularly, so dad never goes to church, but mom goes all the time, what happens? And you can guess, the number goes down even more. 2% worship regularly, we go from 33 to 3% to 2%. 37%, we went from 59% now to 37%. We'll go irregularly which is still good, but not as good as it should be, and we will lose three-fifths. We'll, instead of have, we're getting 60%, we will lose 60%. What if it's dad who is faithful, but mom is not? All right? And um, I want you to just wrap your mind around what I'm going to about to share this with you. Just pay attention here. Dad is faithful, but mom does not. So, if dad goes regularly to church, but mom irregularly. She goes sometimes. Here's what happens. 38% of the children will worship regularly. Did you, did you just realize we, get, we got a 5% bump? 
the number actually goes up. If the father rose regularly and mom doesn't even go to church at all, you know what happens? 44% of the children will worship regularly. The percentages are actually going up. The children, it's really amazing. What if the father just goes sometimes and mom doesn't go at all? Still, 25% of the church children will still worship regularly. Still worship regularly. Dad only goes to church sometimes. Mom never goes to church. That percentage is 25% versus 3% or 2%. Isn't that incredible? 23% of the children will go reg- irregularly. In other words, almost half the kids will still go to church when they're adults if dad just went sometimes. And about 52% is lost. So I want to give you this quote. This is a money quote from this article. A mother's role will always remain primary in terms of intimacy, care, and nurture. No father can replace that relationship. So men should absolutely respect that when mom, your, uh, your wife, has this role. But it is equally true that when a child begins to move into that period of differentiation from home and engagement with the world out there, in other words, when they get out there, start becoming adults and deciding what they believe in, how they're going to live their life, he and she looks increasingly to the father for his role model. Where the father is indifferent, inadequate, or just plain absent, the task of differentiation and engagement is much harder. That's a fancy word of saying it's just harder to become an adult. And so I don't need to, to um, ladies, we're going to talk next week about the difference you make, and it is huge. It's absolutely huge. Um, but today, I want you, if you want your children to follow the Lord, and our church is very serious about what we call mission to the next generation. Kids aren't born believing in Jesus. They must be, the, the gospel must be given to them. And mom and dad is one of the primary means of the mission to the next generation. Um, we need the men to sow the gospel into the children by following, not even by preaching, but just by worshiping. And how will the men do this unless they are led by men? Because you know what? It's a simple social fact. Men follow men. You want a man saying, this is how you're, what you're to believe. This is how to be a man. This is how you should handle your money. This is how you should behave. This is how you should handle work. This is how you should handle sex. This is how you should think about what it means in terms of life. That's what pastors and elders teach. We're teaching men how to be men. Men listen to men when it comes to that. Men need men as shepherds. More and more of the churches that say, well, the women can do that job too. Guess what's starting to happen in those churches? And Robbie Lowe in this article, he talks about it too. In those churches, guess what? The men are leaving church. He talks about it in his own Anglican church. It used to be the, the percentages were very close, like 45, 55%, or very, very close to 50, 50 men and women. But now as they've allowed the women to become the elders and the pastors, guess what? This, the, the, the men are leaving the church. And what does that mean? Then the children leave the church that's why those churches are dying. All the churches that go in this direction, they're dying and they're going to die. We are very serious about mission to the next generation of this church. And one of the reasons why I teach this is because we want your children to follow Jesus. Men and women, especially ladies, you want your children to follow Jesus. 
Encourage your man to follow Jesus. Pray deeply for him to follow Jesus. If he doesn't, pray for him like crazy. Ask every other man in the church to pray for him, to encourage him, befriend him, and we would love to do that. And, uh, and so, let me move to the last portion of my message now. The sacrificing headship of God. Let me give you one more reason why the elders and pastors need to be men. And this is, this, this is the reason, and um, this is what I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you this reason, and then I'm going to give you the gospel, and we'll close out this message. Um, it's men who should lead in sacrificing. When Jesus trained his disciples, who would, who would be the first elders and pastors and shepherds of the church, he said, take up your cross and follow me. He meant it, take up your cross daily and follow me, but he also meant just take up your cross. Do you know that 11 out of those 12 men, they died. That wasn't a metaphor. They sacrificed with their neck. They, some of them were crucified. They literally took up the cross. It is men who should lead their families, their communities, in the call to sacrifice. And of course we are here to sacrifice your safety and work, sacrifice in your job, sacrifice in your energy, sacrifice in all these types of things. But the Bible is talking about even being willing to sacrifice your life. I hope this is very clear to every man in our church. Most men feel this. Every now and then if I feel a man and he doesn't feel this, I just think, hey, to me he's just not a man. That between the men and the women... If so, who is supposed to die <laughs> if, some, if someone needs to die? Any man worth his salt knows it's the men who should die. <laughs> Ladies, if you ever meet a man and somebody breaks into your house, like, hey, I hear somebody breaking into your house, I hope you never have to say, honey, let's, let's do rock, paper, scissors, see who's going to deal with this situation here. <laughs> um, you know, hey, I got the rock, you lost, you go check out who's breaking into our front door. No. Come on. I mean, you know, of course you're laughing because it's ridiculous. There are actually some men who would cower and probably let their wife deal with it because she has more guts than him. Let me tell you, that guy's not a man. <laughs> and, um, and he's certainly no leader in his marriage. And he's certainly not qualified. All elders and pastors should be willing to die for their church, die for their wives and for their children, and die for the gospel. Die. I mean die. <laughs> there should be no question about this. And in our culture, we are starting to get, it is starting to get more dangerous. Religious liberty is in trouble in our society. In the next few years, there are going to be laws that attack and try to undermine religious liberty. And I hope it doesn't happen anytime soon, but I'm getting myself ready that... I will preach something like this in the future and somebody will want to stick me in prison. And I'm ready for that. At least I hope I'm ready for that. It is, I have counted that cost and we're going to train all our elders to count that cost. And that's something that the men should do. Why? Because the greatest man there ever was led this way. In fact, God is ahead this way. God calls himself Father. 
And how did he lead us? With sacrifice. He looked at a bunch of people that were so broken, and they were dying, and they were so lost, and their children were just being given up to the devil. And he said, I will give my very best and sacrifice my best, my son. And then that son, he came to be the chief shepherd, the first truest elder. He began to be the spiritual father of the church. And how will he come? He came to sacrifice. And we're not just talking about somebody putting you in prison. And it is even more than simply that he would be killed, and he was killed. He took on a far deeper danger. It was the danger of hell and damnation itself. That he would be attacked by the devil and receive the very wrath of God. He would sacrifice himself to that danger and to that death. And that is how he led us. Not by being a barbarian, not by abusing, and not certainly by being a coward. He was certainly no coward. And he was certainly not passive. He was ahead through sacrifice. And that is the kind of men that we lead. That is the kind of men that the Bible is calling for. And that is certainly men's work. And so, I hope that um, as you hear this, that this is the kind of men that we will raise up. And when we do, every time that we have men, um, men like this, elders and deacons, let us rejoice. <laughs> let us rejoice. For God has given us these men. I hope the women will rejoice. The children will rejoice. We'll know that we're offering something deep into the blessing, into the death and dying of our city. And we'll know that marriages will be healed and children will be safe and, and, uh, and we'll have strong men and women when we raise up leaders who are heads, sacrificial heads who sacrifice like Jesus. Because this is real leadership. Let's pray. It was a big and hard message. Dear Jesus, the greatest man who ever is and ever will be, the greatest head that there is. And I pray now that all those who heard this message, I pray they would be, they would look upon you, Jesus, and go, the women would say, wow, I want all the men around me to be like that. I want my son to be like that. I want, I want my daughter to marry a man like that. I want my husband to become like that. And I want to help him to be that way. And I want to submit to Jesus and be, have reverence to him to be that way. And I pray all the men, I hope that some of the men in this room, that if this startled them, even caused them to have a fear, if this made you afraid, Brothers, if this made you afraid, join the, join the party. I'm afraid. <laughs> but Lord, I pray that they, all the men in this room would know we don't have to be perfect. We were not saved because we were perfect. You had an obedience and a manhood that we didn't have. You redeemed us and you washed us and you changed us and you will walk with us. And by grace, you will make us the kind of men we need to be. Not because we are so adequate and because we are so strong or because we are so good, but because our King Jesus, he is. 
I pray that all the men who would hear this message, they would want to surrender to him. And then all the women would want to surrender to him. And we would hand over all our marriages and all our children, and certainly the family of God, the church, to you and surrender to you, Jesus. And your glory would shine into this deep, dark, dying, broken city. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.